get started. I have some people that I mentioned on Sunday that we want to remember continuing in our prayers and also encourage you to get one of the bulletins and just stay up to date with folks that really are, are dealing with some severe issues. Jamie's here tonight, so that's great. Yeah, he's waving with his right hand, but not the left. But we're praying that he gets full function in his arm again and is able to deal with the pain, most likely. Uh, remember Ronnie Johnson? He's rubbed a place on his foot, uh, one of his... Uh, he's been back to the, he's gotten medication that seems to be working, the antibiotics, so we're really grateful for that. He's supposed to see a doctor next week for further tests, but we pray that he's going to heal from this and he'll get beyond it. Harold Eaton had his surgery. It was a little more extensive than they had anticipated, but he's home and in some pain, so please remember him as he's recovering and also Martha. You know, Martha's had some severe issues of her own for well, as long as I've known her. But please keep that family in your prayers. And then also uh, Sandy Bonham, she's got some serious health issues that are going on and they're still consulting with doctors and making a determination if and if they do follow through with it, then when she'll be able to have some surgery to try and correct some of the issues that she's dealing with. But she's, she's got some serious problems going on and I just wanna pray that God will give them the right direction to go. Uh, anybody else have someone you want to add? Yes. Okay, um, Sue called us earlier. Sue Mason said she wasn't feeling well tonight. She'll be watching, Lord willing, on the Wi-Fi. So pray she's gonna be okay. Okay, that's terrific. He's had some very serious problems with infection and so forth in his back. And uh, David Yates, and he's on his feet and able to walk at least short distance. So we're thankful for that. Okay, we're going to be praying about these folks here shortly, but let's sing a song first, and then we'll have our prayer and do our Bible study. 627.
Here's an ensign farewell lifted up today while his ransomed ones we're seeing marching on. On everything but loss for the King of Heaven and saved with the banner of the cross. When the great commander of the vault is tied the resurrection day, and before our King of Heaven shall die and the saints Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the day that you've given us and the series of days in which we have enjoyed the blessing of rain. We are very grateful for that. We thank you, Father, for this season that we're in and for the cooler temperatures. And honestly, it, it doesn't matter when or where it is. We're always in awe of the way that you orchestrate nature. And we thank you for the benefits that all of us, in one way or another, uh, derive. We pray, Father, that you will bless these folks here that we've talked about, and so many more that are sick and not feeling well, or who are recovering from surgery or injury. We're praying, Lord, as our will to you, that they be able to recover. We're thankful, Lord, that Jamie's here. And I know he's uncomfortable, but really thank you for his attitude and his desire to be here. And I pray you'll bless him according to what's in his heart. I pray, Lord, for those who've had surgery recently, and especially think about Harold as he's had this surgery on his shoulder, and we pray he'll have a full recovery. Bless Ronnie as he's having wounds tended to. We pray that his body's going to respond to his meditation, and he's going to be well and back with us very soon. We pray for uh, Jamie Warner, who's dealing with a staph infection again, and we just pray that his body will also respond to the medication he gets and that he will be well. We pray for Brother Wixom, who's dealing with cancer. We just pray that uh, the viciousness of this disease will be calmed and that there will be a treatment that can be applied to him that will be effective. We pray for Sue Mason, who's not feeling well tonight, and uh, we know that several in her family have experienced illness, and there's so much illness around us right now. We just we pray that she'll get well and be back with us quick. And we're thankful for the report that we received about David Yates. He's been through so much. But Lord, whether, whether you respond quickly to our prayers or whether it takes time, we're grateful. And seeing him respond and do better 
and to benefit from the treatment that he's received, we're just encouraged. We know that you hear us and you're patient with our pleas. We ask, Lord, that you will bless us now as we're studying together and help us in our studies to be better about being stewards of yours. And especially in this section of our study to have the kind of spirit that you desire us to have regarding our giving, our charity, our desire to help somebody else. Help us to be motivated out of love for them and an effort to see you glorified through our actions. Thank you, Lord, for all that you'll teach us in that. And just please help us really be able to apply these lessons to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is one of those continuations of a lesson we derived from Matthew chapter 6. as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Then your father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. It seems like the greater the demand for holiness, the greater the potential for hypocrisy. It's that thing that we're trying to avoid. When given an opportunity to exercise ourselves to the blessing of another person, we want to have the mind of Christ. In particular, we want to have that servant mind. Or as we talked in our first aspect of our series, to have a mind of a steward. To know that what is in our possession is not something that we own, but that has actually been given to us, put into our possession for God's benefit. That all that we have and all that we are as Christians, having been dedicated to him, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that all of those things are His and that we're responsible to be faithful stewards in the distribution of those blessings to others. And in turn, then God promises that that well of benefit that's being transferred, that's never going to run dry in us. Not when we see the need and we act and we act with the right spirit about us. Now, we looked at what I believe are some apparent or obvious traits that exist in a person who has the spirit of giving. And the first part that we talked about was the spirit of giving as it is gracious. So, oh, I'm sorry. So, 
in examining that, we looked at the statement that Jesus made. Actually, he makes it several times in this short little text. And when you do a charitable deed, we notice that that statement makes an assumption. You know, Jesus is assuming that his disciples are going to be those who are involved in charitable deeds or charitable giving. Now, we looked at some examples from the Old Testament scriptures, and it was apparent that under the Old Testament system, people were givers. But also what we noticed was, yeah, they gave, but they were also required to give. When we come to Jesus, Jesus is expecting something different from us. Not the motivation of a have to do something, but the motivation of wanting to do it. The desire to demonstrate our love for others as God has loved us. Now, when we closed last time, I mentioned that during Jesus's time, there were basically two ways that you could give. You could offer money into what was called the chest, referred to as the gift of the chest. It would have been that chest that was located there at the temple where you could donate your funds on the Sabbath day. And then there was a secondary means of offering alms or charitable deeds, and that was referred to as the gift of the cup. Now, the cup referred to the begging cups that a lot of the beggars around the streets would carry. You wanted to help them. You saw a need. You basically, as a Jew, had an obligation to do something to help that person who was in need. When I was in Fiji one time, Brother Paula Terra, he lived in one of the most humble homes I've ever been in. And I remember on many occasions just thinking, boy, I, I just, you know, I, I feel ashamed. Here, he is a faithful man of God, and he's living in some very humble circumstances. And when we go places, I'd feel like, I, you know what, I should, I should pay for his bus fare or take care some way of his meal, something like that. He always refused even though I knew that it was a stretch for him to provide for those things. But I will never forget us walking the streets of Nandi, Fiji, and there on the side of the street was a beggar. Now, you know, I, I live here in the United States, and typically when I drive to Atlanta, there's a beggar on every street. All of them have signs. They look like professional beggars. In fact, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is right, that many of those actually have to be registered in order to operate in certain areas. It's basically become a profession. So I've, you know, ashamedly become hardened. When I see somebody there, I'll always think the worst. I, I guess that's true of me. But they're walking the streets of Nandi, Fiji, with an escort of a man that compared to me was very poor. When he saw that man on the street with a cup, he dug deep into his pockets, I'm sure, to dig out the only coins he had in his possession or to put into that cup. And I'm just gonna tell you, I've never forgotten the generosity of that moment with Paula Terra. He reminded me of that poor widow, you know, 
who gave all that she had to see to the needs of someone else that she considered to be in worse case than herself. So we have the chest that we could contribute to. We have the cup that we could contribute to. Wait a minute, you say. Hold it. We don't have that. You know, we don't have the professional means by which to offer like the Jews had. We don't go to the temple and put it into the chest. We are hardened to believe that we're just being cheated when we don't see someone on the street corner asking for money. So, you know, where's our avenue? Well, there's an interesting thing that Jesus calls for us to do in the New Testament scriptures. And that is, it isn't so much about the giving into the chest or the giving into the cup that matters so much. What matters with God now is what's going on in our heart itself and the way in which we give on any occasion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 he who, sows bounty, uh, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give, and that would be all of us. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly nor of necessity. And here's why. Because God loves a cheerful giver. Not giving because I feel like I have to give. I'm giving because I feel like I want to give. Again, getting back to the basics. I want to express my love for God through the expression of my love for others. And especially, I mean, we can't, I guess, keep beating on this same drum, but especially those who are the weakest among us, those who are the most needy. So there's no doubt about it. One of, the, one of the attributes that we look for, one of the traits that we're looking for in terms of the spirit of giving is a matter of graciousness, extending the gift. Now that catches us up to what we talked about last time. Tonight, there are two other traits that are observable for all of us. And what we're striving to do is not, not just to recognize what the trait is, but to see if it's observable in us. <laughs> so question number one, is graciousness observable? Secondly, the spirit of giving is humble. Okay, so he gives us the first of two scenarios that he puts back to back. He says, when you, when you do your charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Uh, okay, when I, when I hear that, the way he puts it, I remember that story that I just referenced a moment ago. So I, I'd like for somebody to remind us again of that story from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. If someone will read that text very quickly for us, well, I mean get to it quickly. You don't have to read it quickly, but if you'll get to that quickly, Mark chapter 12, 
verses 41 to 44, we're reminding ourselves of what it truly is to be a humble giver. Anybody have that by now? Okay, Jeremy, read it with, with great passion and strength. Watch the people putting money into the offering. Many rich and rich people put in large sums. And a poor old widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For, the, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had. Okay, that is, thank you, Jeremy, that is a beautiful story of the heart that God is looking for, the heart of a giver, the spirit of a giver. Okay, so simple, you, you've got the rich who are coming in, they're given much, but they're given out of their abundance, so it's not, it's not a sacrifice, in other words. Then you've got this widow who gives what seems to be very little, but in the Lord's mind is more than all the rest because she had given everything that she had, her entire possession, her whole livelihood, she had done what they were not willing to do. But there's one little thing out of what seems to be kind of a comparable story that, that I want to pinpoint with you, because I think that what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 6 just really drives home the point of the kind of heart that we are supposed to have when we give and goes back to the whole idea of being a steward and above all is looking for the opportunity to bring glory and honor to God, the one that we are serving, the one who we are serving in the use of His, of His. And it is the description that's given in our text of a trumpet. So when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be seen by men. Okay, the blowing of a trumpet. Look, the trumpet that's described right here is not of the variety you might think of, like Dizzy Gillespie play. <laughs> you know? It's not one of our modern musical instruments that has the valves and can play every note on the scale. It's not that. This kind of trumpet was a simple device out of which the user could probably blow two or three notes. It was a utilitarian type device, a tool. The tool of the trumpet in this time was very simple. In fact, basically there were two times that you would use a trumpet like this because it made such a loud noise. Either you're calling for the gathering of a group of people, or number two, they used it in military maneuvers. So you can imagine as the war is going on, the battle, it's, it's very loud, there's a lot of clanging and screaming and noise, and if you wanna hear the command of the commander, he didn't vocally give it, he didn't stand up on a stump and start yelling at people, he used one of these trumpets to blow out a sound, probably in a special rhythm. And when the soldiers heard that rhythm, they had already been sensitized to that, what that means. And as soon as they heard it, they would act. They would change maneuvers. 
Okay. So which scenario do you think is in view here? Are we calling with this trumpet for military maneuvers? Or are we calling for a gathering of a crowd? We are calling for the gathering of a crowd. Now, you've just read this text, we all together. What is it that they were calling the crowd for? Look at me, look at me, look what I'm doing. Blow the trumpet, buddy. We are about to lay down a load of money. What is the purpose of that? Why would you want a crowd to see what you give into the treasury? Okay, feed the ego, what'd you say? Make him look big and important. What'd you say? Get the praise. You, now, let's, let's, let's combine these ideas. The people were watching. Were the disciples watching in Mark chapter 12? Oh yeah, they were. Or else this would have meant nothing in Jesus making that comparison. In fact, they may not have even hardly noticed the woman, but they certainly had seen all these rich coming along. If you add in the idea of the blowing of the trumpet, it is the idea of, I've come here for the show. I've come here to give this so that I might receive what Jesus refers to in our text as being the glory from men. Now here's an interesting caveat that comes out of this text. Because we might be tempted to say, if we were falling or leaning back into a legalistic, or let's just put it under the law of Moses, just complying with the law, Ken. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I'm just complying with the law. I'm just doing what I've been told to do. Well, you know what? That's fine, but if in the process of doing the thing that you have come to do, that you have done it for the purpose of receiving glory from men, then here's what he says. They have received their reward. What does that mean? What reward did, is he talking about they satisfied the commandments of God and they've gotten the reward of heaven? Yay! No? Well, then what reward did they get? They, were, they got as a reward the very thing that they were looking for. Now, think about our text again. He's don't, he said, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets that they may receive glory from men. He says, I tell you, they have their reward. The reward that they get is the thing that they were seeking. The thing they were seeking was the glory from men. Now, here's an interesting thing about the idea of reward. There's another way to translate that. And I guess we were going to put it in kind of modern language. It means these guys have been paid in full. Now, if you are paid in full, how much more do you expect to get? Wait a minute, you mean if I write paid in full on, on the receipt, it's over, right? The thing's been, whatever the debt was, when it's paid in full, that means it's over with. You're not getting any more. You say, well, Ken, I, I know that I gave with a bad attitude, but at least I was keeping the commandment of God, so therefore, God's still going to recognize it. Is that true? 
Not if you do it with the wrong attitude, because when you do it to be seen by other people, however small or great, right? You say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be like that widow, and I'm going to let people see that I gave up. Look, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you are poor. If you give out of an attitude that is soured, a desire for people to note you, or to give you some kind of glory or acclaim as though you were tooting your own hole. You remember there used to be kind of a colloquial phrase that went something like uh, trumpeting your own deeds or blowing your own horn. That's where this idea comes from. The sense that I want everybody's attention to see what I'm doing. Jesus says the reward that you get is the very thing that you sought after. That reward is the glory that you receive. Now, let me ask you this question. How long does that kind of glory remain? For instance, do you think that if they gave all those great amounts this Sabbath day, that they don't have to give anymore? How long does that glory remain? You ever heard of this, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> what have you done for me lately? That, that's the thing. If, if that's the route you're going to go on, that kind of glory is quickly fading. It doesn't last. So if that's your track, you know, you're just going to have to keep that up if you want to keep getting the pat on the back. There is a text that I want us to remember again, and I hope that we never forget this one. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. We studied chapter 8, the early verses already, and we noticed in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul says, this is a grace that I want you to continue growing in. But in verse 5, he tells us exactly what the thing is. As regards the Macedonian church, who was actually to be an example to all of us, not just to the Corinthians, but to everybody who would come after. He says that they first gave themselves to whom? They first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. The very first thing that the steward of God does is sets his mind on what? On the Lord. I serve the Lord. Whatever it is that the Lord wants me to do, that is what I will do. And I will not do it grudgingly. I will not do it out of necessity. I will do it because I've purposed myself to do it. I will do it out of a genuine heart of love, expressing what God has put in my possession that's going to go through me and benefit or bless the life of somebody else. I hope we'll never forget that. If we'll do that and we start kind of looking at ourselves as to whether or not we have the trait associated with, with this, this spirit of giving, then two things down already. Number one, I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be quick to give gifts when I see the need that exists. Secondly, I'm going to be humble about it. I'm not trying to toot my horn. I'm not trying to trumpet my deeds. I don't, I don't want anybody to know what's happening because of this final thing. And that is that we're going to have the spirit of giving that when I observe it, when I see the trait, I will see that it is absolutely selfless 
Now, to be selfless means that self is where? Somewhere else, off in the corner over there with his nose against the wall. <laughs> Don't care about you right now. <laughs> I'm doing the Lord's work. So get self out of it. I want the attention squarely on God. I, I, want, I want His approval, and I couldn't care less about what anybody else thinks or any demands that anybody else would make on me. I am the Lord's servant, and that's who I answer to. And so he continues here in our text from Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. Now there's that word reward again. I don't think that's an accident, do you? But let's back up for a minute. Okay, so when you give, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, literally, that don't make sense. But he's trying to teach us a lesson here. If your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, what does that really mean? Nobody else. This is not a known thing. It's done in secret. I'm not, tr I'm not blowing the horn trying to get anybody's attention. I'm not even quietly doing it or flipping the bill so that somebody can see that there's a Benjamin on it or something like that. I don't know. I, I have no pretense, in other words, about what I am striving to do in helping somebody. Or in our case, if it's, it's in the contribution. I'm not doing it in order for somebody to see or somehow benefit myself in some way. Okay. E exactly. Uh, uh, Marilyn's reminding us of, of the next series that's here in our text in Matthew chapter 6, and that is with regard to prayer. Where did he tell you to go pray? Out in the synagogues in the corners of the streets to be seen by men? No. Pray in your closet. Okay, the idea is I'm not doing it as a pretense, not trying to speak in such a way that people just talk about how eloquent I am in my prayers. Not that. We're doing it again in a gracious humble, and in this case, a selfless manner. So, in the, in the giving aspect, it is, it is selfless, it is done quietly, try to do it as, as, as silently, as, as hidden away as possible. And here's the thing. I, I, you know, I'm not your judge. You're not my judge in this. You say, well, oh, brother, so-and-so did this, that, and this, that. Unless Jesus wrote it in the scriptures and identified you and your bad attitude, then I don't know. I can't judge that. That is not my place. But the thing is, God knows. God knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. God is a heart specialist. I want to give you two texts. You'll say, these don't even apply to this. But... The application is with regard to the matter of God knowing our hearts, okay? So as we look at these, that's peace. That's what we're doing, looking at what God knows. The first text is an Old Testament one. Who would like it? It's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, okay? We got a volunteer. And the second one is a New Testament text, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Who would take that one? 
I thought that would fly right off the shelf. Okay, JT. All right, First Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Like when I'm preaching out, got this cough drop in my mouth. I get all that. Um, how shall I say this? Um, okay, the spit. <laughs> you said it, I didn't. Uh, and then my pages stick together. So. Okay. The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord. Sith not as man sith, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Slam dunk, right? This guy is not going to be king. Even though he looks terrific. Oh man, he's handsome, he's strong, he's big, whatever. That was the problem with Saul. Saul was a good looking king. But the heart, not so much. Samuel says, "Uh uh-uh. Let me tell you something about God. God doesn't look on the outward appearance he looks at the heart. He's not like us. We look at somebody and we say, yeah, you know, he's got these flaws, but boy, he looks good, you know. That is not how we choose. We choose on the basis of what is the heart. Okay, so let me, let me ask you, just, just thinking about that, different application, but we learn something about God in that text. So do you think that God can discern when you give whether or not you are giving with the right attitude or not? There is no doubt about it. Okay, and then uh, JT had Acts 13, verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up the living David's king, whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, and after my own heart, he will do all my will. Okay. Now, when 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 that text was referencing a rejection, and guess who actually wasn't on the scene at the time to be chosen? David. David wasn't even there. Uh, so he was like, got any more sons? Uh, well, you know, we David, you know, he's out with the sheep. What would you want with him? He's just kidding. No. He's the one. Why is he the one? Because he was a man, we say, and and the text uh, confirms, he was a man after God's own heart. But what was that person who had the heart of God committed to do? The will of God. You say, and, and I've heard this lots of times in questions, like, why do you think, why do you think the scripture would say that David was a man after God's own heart when he was an adulterer and a murderer and just, you know, lists all those sins. I'll tell you exactly why. It wasn't because he was a perfect person. It did not say, well, I chose David because he was God. That's not it. He chose David because he had a heart like God's. And here's how that heart was like God. He had determined to do what? The will of God. Did he mess up? Yeah, he did. Did he commit heinous sin? Yeah, he did. But his heart was filled with the will of God. Even though David committed all those sins, was David still striving continually to be faithful to God? You know he was. Even to his last breath, he is concerned about the things of God. God knows our hearts. 
And he knows especially well the attitude that we bring when in his name, as his steward, we propose that we're going to help somebody. Now, in that moment of helping, the question is, why, why are you doing it? You know, why do you do the things that you do in my name? Well, there is a, man, there's a terrific story. We'll have time if I get some quick readers. In Acts chapter 4, I'd like somebody to read Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. Don't have a heart attack. Just look at it and read it, okay? And then the other one is Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. This is going to be a comparison between two hearts that were striving to do exactly the same thing and two very different outcomes. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Who has that text? Okay, Jeremy. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Wait, stop it right there for a second. Were they stewards of God? Absolutely. What did they say about the stuff they had? It's not ours. It's all of ours. Okay, keep going, Jeremy. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, stop there for a second again. Okay, were they needy people who received, or wanty people? I just made that word up, but I thought it fit. What I mean is, just because somebody wanted something you had, that isn't what's going on here. There were people who had legitimate needs, and how many of them went without having a need satisfied? Zero, not a one of them. Because God is blessing them through whom? Through those who had things. They had things because they're stewards of God, who had, and where'd that stuff come from? From God. Okay, keep going, Jeremy. Okay, so Barnabas was one of those, Joseph, Barnabas was one of those who went around blowing his horn saying, look at me, I sold a possession to put the money at the apostles' feet. Is that what happened? No, but the Bible set him apart because he did an extraordinary thing. It gives us some details. It says he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Where did Levites get their land? Was it handed down to them generation after generation after generation? No, it was not. Either he purchased that land or someone gave it to him. But once he sold it, was it ever going to come back? You know that dirty little secret, all the Jews had possessions. They could sell land, but at least in 70 years that land would come back. I mean, you're never losing it, right? Even if you get in a hardship, you could get the money. Eventually your family's going to get that land back. Not, not Joseph, not Barnabas. That's why he's referred to as the son of encouragement. But you know how it is. People hear something which, which when you read that, that's beautiful. Here's an example of somebody who's willing to give something that really costs it, really make a sacrifice here. We want to 
Barnabas, stand up. You know, man, you are, you are a great example to all of us. And invariably, there will be somebody sitting in the congregation who goes, I can't believe they gave Joseph a nickname. Boy, if they knew him like I did, they wouldn't call him a Barnabas. But I'll show them one of them. So who will read chapter 5, verses 1 through 10? Okay, Rick. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And came back part of Christ. His wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why had Satan filled out the heart of the life of the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the bank? Because it remained, was it not thine own? And after your soul, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou received this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto me, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell out and gave up the ghost. Hey, stop right there, Rick. I just want you to notice this. Who had they lied to? The Holy Spirit. But he says, now notice that, real subtle, but it ties in with what we said. You're seeking the glory of men. He says, you haven't lied to men about this. You know, here's, here's the thing. It isn't that you're just seeking the glory of men. I'm telling you, you haven't just, just put on a show for us. You have, in fact, lied to God about it. Okay, keep going. Stop right there. You reckon? <laughs> I guess so. Okay, keep going. And the young man arose, planned him up and carried him out and buried him. It was about the space of three hours when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter, Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. And then Peter said unto her, I is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirits of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which are buried by us are at the door and carry thee out. Then she fell out straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost. The young men came in and found her dead. Okay. Do I need to say any more about that? Give glory to God. Do not seek your own glory. We are stewards of God. So whatever it is that we're able to accomplish or do, we do it not, not to our own acclaim. We do it to the glory of God. Let's have a quick prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word and just what a simple message that it gives and the tremendous truths that you share with us. Lord, help us to embody this. Help us to have a true spirit of giving. Help us have a genuineness of heart, Lord. And I pray you'll examine us to see if what we are is true. And wake us up if something is amiss in us, that we can live a life in such a way as to truly be the steward that is faithful in your service. In Jesus' name, amen.